Thank you for listening. This is Israel Rebanda podcast, joining listeners from around the world to Israel, exploring the ties that bind us through culture, identity, and current events. I'm Alan Potash in California, and I'm joined with my co-host and friend, Liz Felstron in Jerusalem. Liz, Hi, Alan. Hi. We're getting ready to um, start a new year, 2024. We have uh, 2023 behind us in the rearview mirror. But it really wasn't a a mirror we want to keep looking at, although we still have over 129 hostages in Gaza. The Israeli army is actively uh, at war with Hamas. Um, But we have to look forward to 2024 in as optimistic a way as possible. What do you think? I think a optimistic slash realistic slash try to create some, you know, routine or, or expectations for ourselves to make what the future holds a little bit less scary. Um, you mentioned earlier offline, you know, that none of us has a crystal ball. And of course, that's true. But that being the case, I think we'll it's still healthy to try and look ahead and say what are the things that we can um, realistically expect in the in the year to come. We talked on our last podcast about the trauma that Israelis are going through. I know that there are still rockets being launched from Gaza into southern Israel and from Hezbollah in Lebanon into northern Israel. We still have a fair number of people who've been displaced or evacuated from their homes. Is that still being addressed in day-to-day life in Israel? So, well, certainly very much so for those 150,000 plus people at this point that are still evacuated and not able to return to their homes, right? For them, it is a daily reality that there is no escaping. And then we have another you know, a couple hundred thousand people who are are out of their homes because they're serving in the military uh, and reserve duty. So, yes, that that situation of so many people being away from home is definitely still on everyone's minds. And what will that look like going forward? Right. Families and, and people have been in hotels now for almost three months. In some cases, people have started to go back home, depending on where they're from and if they have homes to come back to. For others, they're going to be in the hotels for another month, two months, maybe a little longer. Um, But then we know that there's going to have to be a next stage, right? Staying in the hotels for a very long time is not tenable or healthy. Um, And so I think. Certainly the the kibbutzim communities, the cities, it's a little bit different, and we can talk about that separately, but for the kibbutzim, they're each very much now looking at what will their next step, what will their intermediate um, housing and lifestyle situation look like before they can really go back to the kibbutzim, which will take at least another year or something like that to rebuild. Can you talk a little bit about the difference of community based on your experience with kibbutz life versus city life? I mean, how do you, you know, kibbutz is a, is definitely a small village where everybody knows everybody really, really well. And now 
you know, they're being relocated into cities, kind of different uh, community structures. Yeah. So, so one thing that we have seen here is that even though in many ways the kibbutzim were, you know, suffered the the worst of October seventh. On the other hand, they are very strong communities. They're communities that have leadership and systems and a culture of looking out for one another and planning and organizing for themselves. And those kibbutznik abilities continue to show themselves um, and be useful even in evacuation, even in the hotels, right? The hotels that are populated by people from uh, any any of the kibbutzim really, very early on, knew exactly how many preschoolers they had and exactly how many elderly people they had and exactly who needed what special care and treatment. Whereas if you look at people coming from a city, people from Sterot, people from Ashkelon, staying in hotels, they don't have that. There's nobody that can tell you exactly what the needs are, who hasn't left their room all day. Um, and so it's a very different situation. And there is there's more concern and, and danger of people kind of slipping through the cracks if they're coming from a city. Those those communities if are going to need to learn to to flex some of those muscles so that they can take care of one another while they're away from home. Um, and that's not, you know, it's not an easy thing to do for a community where people are used to looking out for themselves or they have their friends or their immediate family, but not thinking of themselves as part of a larger collective. I'm finding this to be a very, very interesting challenge for any country to be in, but to have to relocate, you know, 150, 200,000 people from small communities and having them placed in hotels. Uh, I know some of the hotels are in the Dead Sea, a lot in other places, but to think about a community of three, 400 people, or even six, 700 people having to relocate and continue that, that centralized communal structure, um, I, it, it has to be very challenging. I wonder if the country has the services to be able to support the variety of needs that those individuals will have to have. The country is certainly doing what it can and trying to support the needs, but you're right. It's certainly not easy and the needs are tremendous, right? And and it's everything from the very basics of Okay, so we moved people to hotels, but nobody thought about, well, how are they going to do laundry? Um, to more complicated things, people who were in the midst of various medical treatments in their home location, but now they need to continue that treatment in a new location with new, you know, doctors and, and how do they get set up to do that? Um, you know, at this point, all of guess most of, you know, the immediate issues that would come up in the first three months of people being out of their homes have come up. And 
So government, civil society have worked together to solve as much as they can, right? One of the very early things that happened was that each of Israel's four large HMOs said that, you know, you could see a doctor anywhere in the country. It didn't matter if it, you know, you were someplace other than your hometown, that was fine. You could be seen that all uh, that you could fill prescriptions in any city, that if you needed to get prescriptions delivered for any reason, whether it's that you didn't know how to get to the pharmacy or you were afraid to leave your home because of rocket fire or whatever it was, you could get it delivered. Right? They they took steps to get all of these things in place. But even still, there are more things that come up after three months in a hotel. People have evolving needs. People who were fine get sick. People that, you know, Kids didn't need something, now do need something, the weather changes, right? Obviously, things continue to come up. Um, But the the country is very much trying to to meet those needs. Moving into that next stage, that intermediate term, right, of seeing whole communities, a whole kibbutz move from where they are staying now in a hotel to... um, You know, some of the kibbutzim have said that their plan is that they're going to take an apartment building or apartment complex in a city someplace else in the country and live there as a community. In some ways, we sort of go back to the drawing board then with figuring out, well, how do they go to school, the kids? Where do they go to school? What do older adults do during the day for, for recreational activities? How do people work? Where do they work? Um... So some of those things that were solved to a certain extent, more or less, in the hotels will need to be refigured out um, as people move to the next stage. Hopefully, since we'll be moving to that next stage, not under the dire emergency of a massacre, you know, when people went on October 7th, 8th, 9th, it can be done much more in an organized fashion with forethought and planning. Um, and it won't be as traumatic of an, of an experience as it was the first time around, but certainly there will still be kinks and things that will need to be solved. Yeah. I mean, you're posing so many challenges. I'm just thinking in general, if you think of somebody who has spent most of their life in a rural community of a, of a kibbutz or a moshav, and then being relocated to a city, there's, there's a lot of discomfort there. There's several more services that are provided within a city than in a, a kibbutz or moshav, a small little community. Um, but if you spent, you know, 50 years of your life or 60 years of your life building a community like a kibbutz, and then you're basically relocated to an apartment complex, um, psychologically, that's a challenge. For sure. And that's, you know, that's one model. That is not what all of the kibbutzim have decided to do. Some of the kibbutzim have found ways to join up with other kibbutzim, for example, that have a, a basic infrastructure in place and have additional land that they're allowing one of the evacuated kibbutzim to come onto, set up, uh, bring in, you know, like caravan sort of trailer type, but nice trailer type homes. We call, those um, mo- we call those mobile homes. <laughs> they're, I guess, they're like mobile homes, but they're they're more like prefab homes, right? right. That it 
it doesn't really go anywhere. It's not mobile, but it gets sort of plopped down, all all built, and then yeah, pre-manufactured, right? Pre-manufactured homes. Pre-manufactured homes. So something, whatever the Israeli equivalent of that is, right? So for some of the kibbutzim, they'll be still in a kibbutz environment um, by by joining with another existing kibbutz that um but still, right, each community has its culture and its way of doing things, and that will be an adjustment. Um, but again, you know, if you think about it, it goes back to what I was saying earlier about that these kibbutzim have a leadership and they have a way of making these kind of decisions. They could have a meeting together and discuss, okay, these are our options. Where do we want to go? It's clear that we want to stay together as a community. I mean, nobody's forced. Somebody wants to leave and do their own thing. I guess they can. But by and large, they want to stay together as a community, right? Where do they as a community think is their best option? And they can decide and they can do it. People that are from cities don't have those kind of mechanisms. There's no, you know, group that they're a part of that's looking out for them. Some people maybe have a little bit of a community if they happen to be religious and they have a synagogue that they go to or a neighborhood that's a little friendlier maybe. But for most people, they don't have that kind of a setup. I, I just, you're making me think a lot about my early days in Israel where I li lived on kibbutz for a year and knew everybody and everybody knew me or at least I thought they, they knew me. Um, but because it, but it was a small it was a smaller kibbutz and then I went to a larger kibbutz where we were kind of isolated from the rest of the kibbutz and then moving into a city like Jerusalem other than the one story I've shared before about having to escort a six-year-old across the street I didn't really get to know any of my neighbors um, in my vast you know community of apartment buildings in in um, Jerusalem so it just makes me think how challenging it is to be, you know, relocated from your comfort zone of your kibbutz, where you know everybody and you know who to help and who needs help, versus going into a a city environment where it's just overwhelming at times. Mm -hmm. And the you know the the it takes a toll on public infrastructure when you have this kind of mass movement. I think we talked about uh, in another episode how in a lot, for example, the population basically doubled overnight. So to have double the number of people that need to somehow use hospitals, use schools, use post offices, right? All of the regular things that a city provides for its citizens, but is not set up to all of a sudden provide it times two is is a major difficulty and who will pay for that mostly the decision in israel has been that the cost should be borne by the place from which the people are coming right so the local municipality is supposed to provide funds to help out the receiving municipality but funds isn't always enough if you only have X number of doctors in your city, you know, having more money doesn't necessarily help you take care of exponentially more people. That, um, yeah. that brings me to a new topic, which we can continue to talk about the 
displacement and the evacuees because it's an it'll be an ongoing conversation. But you talk about municipalities and funding the different challenges. Aren't municipal elections scheduled for uh, 2024? Yes, the um, municipal elections were originally scheduled for late in October. And then obviously with the war, they were postponed until the end of January. And now they've just been postponed again until the end of February. It's not easy to think about holding elections during wartime. I saw a figure that over 600 people who plan to run in elections are currently serving in reserve duty, right? So when you have people that would like to run for office but aren't home to campaign or even cast their own vote, you know, that's that's not really how the system is meant to work, which is why it made sense to to push off the elections. On the other hand, you can't go you know, much longer than was intended because you have people that are meant to be leaving office and you have posts that need to be filled, et cetera, et cetera. I, I think this opens up a whole nother challenge for a, a country when you have, say, 20,000 new residents in your community and are they legally able to vote in the new community or um, or do they have to maintain their residency in their previous community, even though it's not functioning. I mean, this is a, if anybody out there needs a PhD dissertation, <laughs> this could be an interesting conversation on, on city planning and civic engagement. That was an open-ended um, comment. I don't know if there's sure. a... Yeah, yeah. Um, I, so those are some of the things that are happening here and that people are thinking about and trying to figure out as we do move into this next stage. Um, really keeping an eye on the on all of the communities, but particularly outside of the kibbutzim, where we know that there is less of a communal structure and a com communal culture. I am um, where we need to make sure that people aren't going unnoticed, and yeah, we'll see what twenty twenty four holds. Well, I think this is a good place for us to to end today's podcast. I just, I think um, you're just generating so many issues that Israel is going to go through over the next year. Uh, and the trauma we talked about in the last podcast is not really going to change. Um, we still have a country at war. We still have hostages being held captive. And now you have, you know, people having to resettle their lives from where they, you know, were traumatized in their in their communities before or during October seventh. Um, so I wish, I wish twenty twenty four is only positive and helps the people of Israel in a much needed way. Absolutely, yes. Thank you. We will take it. That is what we all wish for for Israel. Absolutely. Thank you, Liz. And thank you all for listening. This has been Israel Rebound. Thanks, Alan. Thanks, everyone.